Okay, so welcome to another episode of Affordable Housing and Real Estate Investing. Today, we got a special topic about multifamily underwriting as it pertains to market rate rents and also Section 8 or affordable housing. You might be thinking to yourself like, hey, you, you, you're trying to get into multifamily affordable housing, but you don't know where or how. Today, you're going to be listening to Andrea's approach for how she underwrites multifamily deals with a focus on affordable housing so you know how to identify a deal. So welcome to the show, guys. I got my guest co-host today, Dane Conley, and my past guest co-host, Andrea Garcia. We're going to have a blast today. Welcome back to the show, guys. What's going on, everyone? Hey. I'm so excited. <laughs> yeah. I need to get the, the excited. I've noticed every podcast, Andrea gets the, kind of the party head bob going, so I got to <laughs> learn that. <laughs> I'm just excited about multifamily. I mean, I got into this profession because I really do want to affect so many people's lives. My family grew up in Section 8, affordable housing. Um, you know, you have parents who struggle their whole life to provide you a roof over your head. Immigrant parents, I'm the first generation born in this country, and I'm just um, excited to be able to provide uh, my family back the returns that they've given me. So anytime I see a smile on my mom's face because of a vacation or something extra I do for, you know, my father, it's like brings my warmth to my heart. And I'm also capable of helping thousands of people out there who don't have clean, safe, affordable housing. And then we're able to renovate these units to like class A level. So you see a tear in people's eyes, happy faces. And um, it, I feel like that's the main reason why, that's my why. It's just to help affect people and to know that they're capable of much more than the circumstances that they were born into. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. She has such a... Ken, you're you're a great guy and energetic, and I love hanging out with you. But when Andrea, I, when Andrea comes on screen, I can't help but smile. It's she's <laughs> she's got the sweet <laughs> party dance. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just oh, excited man. to share the impart the wisdom and knowledge, you know, because a lot of people, like I said before, they have not. Uh, when I first started in multifamily investing, especially for a focus in Section 8, um, you really have to figure it out. Yeah, They don't teach this knowledge in school. Mm -hmm. They really don't. So you have to really spend the day every day. I spent 12 hours a day literally on the elliptical, reading third-party reports, doing what I could, staying late nights to feel it, really understand what is a pro forma, a third-party mm -hmm. report, like a phase one environmental property condition report, um, seeing what is a target market analysis. There's just so much to learn, but you know that that knowledge will create power in the future for how you can help others with identifying a good deal and living in that good mm -hmm. deal. Yeah. Yeah. That's why this business model is so cool. You get to help thousands of people have your heart feel full and warm from helping just great families get, get the shelter that they deserve. And we, as some of the partners in these deals, we get to help other people make money and create generational wealth while doing good, while feeling good, while doing good. So this is awesome. I mean, Andrea, like everybody loves the thought of helping people, right? But obviously you, you can't lose money at the same time. So one of the first questions that most people ask is just like, well, if I'm getting started, like how do I even pick what markets uh, I should focus on? Do you have any advice to start sharing with the audience like how you go about picking the markets and what you're focusing on? Let's start there. Off the top of my head, just by understanding what market you want to be in, a lot of people usually start off by wanting to stay comfortable in the city that they've grown up in. They're like, oh, I know my city, but 
sometimes those cities don't have the target metrics that you're looking for, such as uh, rent growth population, um, what are the major employers that are entering this market or are they leaving? There's also understanding of how the rents are affected in those markets. So usually what I do, I go on the HUD website and then there's other mediums to check this out is to see how the rents have either increased, decreased, or what's the percent that they have increased so that you know that you can target um, certain neighborhoods as well, like zip codes, to be able to understand, okay, this is the market I want to be in. There's also demographic considerations. So if you're going to invest in uh, military housing, student housing, uh, if your core target population is going to be maybe bachelorettes and bachelors, then there has to be a lot of um, travel and tourism in that area, along with some really good uh, like stadiums or entertainment. So it's really understanding how the market is operating and where you want to invest in. And the best way to find out is all, honestly, start calling brokers, start calling brokers, start calling people in the area, go to the meetups in that market, get really familiarized with what you're dealing with because you're basically swimming in a new lake you're swimming in a new pool and you have to kind of feel how cold or warm the water is so that you can understand i feel comfortable staying in here and swimming yeah that's that's uh you hit the nail on the head for for us i'm in columbus ohio I know the city really really well so i felt very comfortable columbus is growing like wildfire why leave? Why leave? I, I can go touch the building, smell the building, see the building. And that's always reassuring, especially when you're investing sometimes millions of dollars. You know, we're getting to the point where because of the growth in Columbus prices, uh, what I was joking with a property manager today, I think $80,000 a door is the new $45,000 a door from just five years, four and a half years ago, five years ago. Um, so for somebody like me, what would you recommend uh, to myself and Jared on if we're considering other markets, which we're starting to, because things are maybe not as, um, affordable as we mentioned before the show section eight here in Columbus is kind of a mess right now. Unfortunately, it was very, uh, good. And so it is very, very difficult uh, to to play nice in the sandbox with. Um, if we were looking at other markets, you know, you had mentioned earlier doing a target market analysis. What what all does that entail and, and, and help me step outside of my comfort zone of, of Columbus, Ohio, and, and, and give me some objective da data and feedback on what you do uh, on a daily basis? Um, to, to help me work up the guts to, to step outside of, you know, my, my safety zone here. Of course, that's a lot of, that's the mindset of a lot of people where they don't know where to start. So um, whenever you do any kind of a multifamily target market analysis, you usually want to start off by understanding there's a couple of metrics. What is the population in the city and in the neighborhood? Um, so if you're finding out, okay, if I'd like to vacation to these locations, or stay there and live there, then I want to understand what's the median rent per month. Um, what is the minimum in income needed for the rent? So I'm not going to be able to put specific, uh, let's say section eight properties in a neighborhood that is truly not experiencing rent growth or population growth. 
So you want to make sure that if somebody, if the average median income for um, a population is about a hundred thousand, that's tremendous, of course. But you have to understand if your product that you want to invest in, like Section Eight Affordable or maybe luxury apartments, those are different areas that you might invest in. So some people would say, "I'm going to see if I'm going to invest in this city." Okay, but what part of like, let's say Los Angeles, I want to understand Los Angeles is such a huge city. What neighborhood do I want to focus on? Uh, what areas are making more money? What's that median home value? Uh, there's also median income that you want to understand. What's the percentage of renters that I'm going to see that could rent the possible this possible apartment building? I also look at uh, what is like a vacancy per year. So sometimes I approach it by talking to property managers in that sense. So I like to get my feet wet by talking to property managers who will tell me what's the vacancy, what they anticipate is going to be the rent growth per year. What are they seeing in terms of the types of tenants that are renting those units? And then if there's any major employers in the area, then just to kind of list them out. Okay, when do they start here? How soon are we looking to have other employers move in? Just overall, you want to encapsulate all of that by talking to people and also creating like your own spreadsheet to see how what resources you can pull by understanding what's the rent versus like what's the rent we're asking for versus what the average person is making in that area. We'll get a sense of what I'm saying. <laughs> Yeah, no, totally. And those are all awesome, awesome metrics that, that I think everybody should look at. Is there, in terms of like the population growth, uh, mean income, whatnot, is there a certain website that you utilize or you recommend that people could go to to start to get a, a, you know, get a feel for Los Angeles compared yes. to Columbus, compared to Des Moines, Iowa, compared to Sarasota, Florida? Is and, and does it take into account cost of living um, in, in those mm -hmm. areas or, or how, how could I get started? So for the job projected job growth, I actually have a list of resources I could share with you guys later. But I usually look at the U.S. Department of Labor to see what they are seeing in terms of job growth. I also look at what brokers send me in their offering memorandums. I check websites like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. They have a lot of really good demographic updates. In terms of population growth, uh, I usually look at the U.S. Census Bureau, and I'm also able to see a website that's, I think it's uh, nar.realtor. They have really great website updates about population growth. And then cap rate growth, uh, that is something that you would definitely ask a broker in the area. You could Google it, and then you check with local appraisers. If you want to see how the cap rates are either increasing or decreasing in that market, I like to talk to appraisers because that's their job. They need to understand how the value is increasing or decreasing in those markets for that product type, the, the apartment buildings. And then vacancies, I usually check uh, the historical financials of any project that I'm looking at. So if I want to look at it on a per project basis, I could check the financials. But if you want to ask a property manager, that would be your best way to go about it. Just what's the vacancy per year? How's it increasing, decreasing? And then rent growth, you can check that by going to, um, I usually go to a couple websites. Like I check hud.gov slash FMR, like fair market rents to see how the fair market rents are increasing or decreasing by unit type. 
and you can check year by year. So now I think they just published 2023. So um, you could check 2022, 2021. And I usually see how it's increased or decreased by checking the fair market rents. There's also an amazing website that I love when I started learning about tax credit properties, um, Novoco, N-O-V-O-C-O. They have a great uh, rental income calculator so that you could check the projected median household income. And I can send it to you later, but it's an amazing tool. You can actually see what are the fair market rents, what are the median rents, and then what's the average median income per area. So Novoco uh, has a rent income calculator and that's a really great way to just check it all around. I love all those resources because for all the listeners out there, we'll definitely grab these resources from Andrea. We'll put it into the show notes. So all guys. guests can actually get access to all of these items because this is this is huge, right? Sometimes you just need to know where to start. And sometimes you just need someone to just tell you all at once, just like what you did just now, Andrea. Like, bam, hot dog gov slash FMR. Bam, Novoco. That's exactly what you need to do. And I don't want to discount one thing that you really called out. And this is something you taught me. You said to call other comp I, I'm call other properties in the neighborhood, and then you can actually understand what are the most popular unit types, like one bedroom, two bedrooms, what's most in demand. And then you can also go ask about amenities. You can see what your competition is doing. I think people discount how much information you can get just by picking up the phone. And I think oh, in this totally. world right now, right? In this world right yeah. now, everyone's just texting, texting, texting. People forget to just call, pick up the phone and call sometimes. And <laughs> it's, it's like such a wealth of information. <laughs> I mean, I every time I someone sends me a deal to underwrite, the first thing I do, I just grab the address they send me and then I plug it into Google. I hit nearby and I search apartments because I want to understand what apartments are near the subject property that I want to invest mm -hmm. in. So I make note of all those apartments. Usually I, I do at least 12 comps. Some people do three or five, I do 12 mm -hmm. because I want to understand what percentage of those apartments nearby are section eight, which ones are luxury, which ones are actually comparable mm -hmm. to my subject property. So you can call the ones, you can all call all of them and see what amenities that they offer. Um, but that's really the best way is just to pick up the phone and call people. I call for my comps. I'm very old school because I usually don't depend on what the broker sends me in the offering memorandum. Mm -hmm. I just do my own analysis. Another uh, good tool to use, I think, is a neighborhood scout that also you mm -hmm. can check the crime rates in the area. And then I also check if there's any uh, nearby gas stations or dry cleaners that might present some environmental um, issue triggers in the future whenever you're doing undergoing third-party uh, due diligence analysis. And then I also check the assessor website to see um, just actual property data. So whenever I, I see an offering memorandum from a broker, I usually double check it with the assessor's website to see if what the county has listed is what is actually reported it to be. But yeah, it, it is very powerful to pick up the phone, call people, especially for comps, but also for property managers and seeing, okay, this is a market I can see myself in. Well, yeah, and that's trim. I, I had to mute myself because I was taking so many notes. I hope you didn't hear my clickety clack. <laughs> Two quick questions. Uh, one, which, what comes for you, Andrea? What comes first, the, the chicken or the egg? Like, do you do all this research and find cities based off of that that 
you know, financial and growth, population growth information, or do you get a deal handed to you and then reverse engineer, like start to look at those things? Or is it a mixture of, of both? You know, originally when I started out with uh, an investment group I work with, they have access to all this data around the country about which markets to invest and in. you should be in this specific city, in this county. But in reality, you, you can see what the growth is in those reports. But I really feel like the way I approach it is if someone is sending me a deal now because I know the market I'm focused on, I, I, I know that that's the market I want to invest in. But if someone says, hey, I have a deal for you in Waco, Texas, <laughs> then I have to approach it as if I'm brand new to that market. I have to basically okay. say, okay, if it's in this Waco, Texas, why are you investing in this? What do you see the population is growing at? Do you see that apartments are selling at a high rate or are people staying put? Um, is there any, is it a non-flood zone? I mean, there's other questions I usually ask, but usually I want to do that targeted market market analysis first before someone sends me some a city to invest in. I have to do that analysis for at least 10 minutes and just start doing my research. And then I'll be like, all right, I feel comfortable getting in these cities if the population is growing by maybe like, you know, 3% or, um, you know, it just depends. And the vacancy is usually always increasing. Increasing. Um, it just depends on what market as well. <laughs> sure. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. And my second question was, and this may be outside of, of today's topic, so I apologize for straying too much. But I just, while we have her, I want to pick her brain, Kent. Uh, <laughs> doing the question, uh, Dan. <laughs> you mentioned property management. How do, how do you research that or do you is that not part of your daily duties? Because, again, it's hard to find a good one. Trust me, I, I know. Um, is there is that part of your your analysis that you also do? And then how do you narrow down the good, the bad, the ugly? Um, and if you don't if you don't do that, tell me to stop asking. Questions. I have done it in a, in a couple of ways. Um, so whenever you're looking for a good property manager, because it does pertain to the underwriting of how they're going to handle the asset in the future. I think we did this with Kent a while back where we saw, we were looking at an offering memorandum, we got the financials and we saw that the vacancy was like 3% or 5%. It was amazing. The fact that maybe it was 2%, it was pretty low. But whenever you see the financials of the, these buildings and you see that the property is actually in good condition, the vacancy is really low, less than 5%, that, that's pretty impressive. So I would actually start a conversation with those types of property managers and say, hey, what is the average vacancy of the buildings that you're operating at? Okay, cool. Can you send me an example financial of a building? You can remove the name. I just want to see what what this one's operating at. I also um, check like the offering memorandum. So if you go on loopnet.com, loopnet, I think it's loopnet, and then Crexy, uh, you're able to download a couple of financial packages, and you can see where these properties are currently operating at, and if the vacancy is low, if the expense ratios are pretty appropriate. So if it's a Class A building, I think what did I say? So Class A buildings are like brand new. They, they're brand new or they're just new, new built, like they've been recently renovated. 
those types of expense ratios that you're going to expect from those properties, which is basically the expenses divided by the income, you're going to usually see about 40, 45% of the way it's operating because it, it shouldn't have too many high expenses because it, because it's already past that capital expenditure, big renovation, you know, those extraordinary expenses have already occurred. So it should be operating well. Um, but if it's a class B, usually you're going to see about a 50% expense ratio and then class C, uh, which is <laughs> in a not great neighborhood, maybe the building is over 20 years. Uh, it, that one you're probably going to see about a 55 to 60% expense ratio. So it's good to understand by the financials how the property management team is actually operating. Uh, but I usually call around <laughs> nearby to see who is near the subject property I'm looking to buy. And then I want to understand what the vacancies that they're incurring at the moment. So Dane, maybe it sounds like another way to go about it is you actually are searching through offering memorandums and just for the audience to know what an OM is, it's basically yeah. like a marketing brochure for a property that's coming onto the market. It's kind of like a fancy marketing material that tells you exactly what you can make with the property. But even for these properties that might be overpriced, so to speak, you can get a lot of information by finding out who that property management company is. And that's how Andrea and I found one really, really good property management company in North Carolina. We found it in you know, OM that had really, really good numbers. It almost seemed unrealistic. And we got on a phone with them and they seem legit, right? So it's very, very interesting um, when it comes to underwriting, because sometimes people just focus on the numbers, but they forget that the most critical success factor is the team you have in that market. And having an awesome property management company that's in place to execute upon that plan is just as more, if not even more important than the analysis that you actually wrote in, in, and went through in your spreadsheets. Um, so yeah. I definitely want to pu pull back and make sure we hit all the underwriting steps that we talked about, because we talked a little about market analysis. We talked a little bit about property management, all of which those factors are important. But Andrea, like, how do you actually go through all the steps? Like, let's maybe just start with like, what are all the steps? And then let's dive into each one of those steps a little bit more, more in depth. What do you think? Yeah, of course. That sounds great. I mean, um, I do want to start it off by telling people that you know, even though this is an affordable housing podcast, we want to make sure that we're, we clarify that market rate properties are underwritten similarly to Section 8, but Section 8 has a little bit more intricacies, intricacies involved into it. So whenever we're going to see how we're going to charge rent, that's the biggest difference. Like, how are we going to charge the rent? How soon can we charge the rent? And why are we charging this rent? So there's more questions asked, usually in affordable housing. Um, in the way we're going to charge that rent, but in market rate deals, um, I, I actually wrote down what's the difference. So <laughs> we want to understand, okay, first off, whenever we're going to do step one of underwriting, I'll, I'll go through the steps. So step one of underwriting would usually be just do a quick napkin underwrite. If, if it's the buy box that you're looking to purchase, do that napkin underwrite make sure that it fits the criteria and the returns that your team is looking for. Number two is understanding your market analysis. So you have to see, is this the market I want to invest in? What are the as is as rehab comparables? If it's going to, we're going to keep the property the way it is, or if we're going to renovate it, what are the comparables in that market? So you have to obviously call around and see what that entails. 
Step three would be uh, what are the in-place revenue and operating expenses? You're looking at expense ratios, and with the only way to do that is by downloading like the T12, the trailing 12 of performance, and you're going to have the rent roll. It's also very helpful for you to see what's the OM, the offering memorandum, because I usually just download the unit breakdown and I see how I can charge rent versus what's currently being charged. Step four, I look at the trends. I very deep dive into the trends of what's on the financials and, and the market as well. And then the step five, I typically look at what are the renovation expenses. So anytime I'm looking at improving the actual units or the, the fascia, the exterior of the building, the landscaping, you want to see what costs you're going to undergo so you can make it comparable to the market and then how you're going to underwrite that and charge that back in rent. And then I look at um, the next step would be financing terms. So you want to make sure that you have financing lenders available, private money, uh, so the financing terms you're going to be able to obtain from a lender. And then also the last step is usually I look at the target return metrics. I want to make sure that my investors are taken care of. So it depends on how you're going to see those metrics. Sometimes you're going to have cash on cash returns that that's my, my be your initial focus. But I usually look at the IRR, the internal rate of return. There's also your equity multiple uh, am I going to get, it's a two X. So if I'm going to get a two X to back twice my money in 10 years, you want to know what that, how soon that could be based on the numbers that you're underwriting. So usually if I, once I see what my target metric returns are, and if it's not reaching that like 15% IRR or 17%, then I have to work back the numbers and see how I can work with the management fees, maybe tweak the expenses, um, how I can increase income. So you start with all those steps and then you work your way back to see how soon you can get your investors their money back. Love it. So let's let's dive into the steps. And so the first thing is the napkin underwriting. And just because there's a lot of multifamily jargon, right? Napkin underwriting sounds like a, another word for quick and dirty analysis. Is that a good way to think about it? And how does that differ between market rate and section eight, if, if it does differ? Um, when I was looking at this question, I, I said, okay, napkin underwrite, they call it napkin because it's basically something you can do with a pencil mm -hmm. or pen in the back of a napkin. <laughs> <laughs> Usually like the napkin underwrite is pretty simple. I mean, you just need to make sure that you do your quick analysis and that usually involves uh, knowing what is your gross potential annual income. So I, this gross potential annual income, that's the number you start off with. That's basically the number that the actual rent or the income you're receiving as well all together if all the units were occupied 100%. So if the, you're, you're going to see what the rent is plus all the additional income, combine that together, and that's your gross potential annual income if it's 100% leased up. And then after that, you're going to usually deduct the economic and physical vacancy. Uh, we usually start off, uh, there's rules of thumb out there that say 10% is the rule of thumb, but it really depends on the market you're in and what you see as normal vacancy for the area. And sometimes we see buildings that have like 30% vacancy, which is wild. So you have to ask a question as 
why are over 30% of these units not leased up? <laughs> so it's good to understand what's the, by looking at the rent roll, that's how you see what is the vacancy, just by doing a quick analysis and seeing which ones are leased up, which ones are not. And then that'll give you, um, so once you multiply, uh, you, you deduct the percentage of the vacancy by the actual gross potential income, you're gonna be able to have your net annual income. That's the net. And then based on the asset type, the class that you have, if it's a if it's a class B property that we're looking at, then that would be a 50% expense ratio. So I would take example, let's say the net annual income is 100,000, expense ratio is 50%. So your NOI is gonna be 50,000 a year. That's annualized. So you wanna see what's your net operating income. And then from there, your net operating income will actually be divided by your market cap rate. And the market cap rate is usually the capitalization rate. It's a standardized rate that will usually tell you by brokers how soon you're going to make back your money. Um, so some, if it's a class B building, sometimes it might be like a 5% cap rate. It depends on the market, like I said. Um, and so you're, what you're going to do is you're going to divide that number by like 5%. And that'll give you your actual valuation. So if the broker is telling you uh, that the NOI is 45,000, the market cap rate is 5%, your valuation is going to be about 900,000. But they're asking for 3 million. So you have to ask a question, why is that? <laughs> Sometimes you have to work back the numbers and understand, okay, if my valuation is coming in at 900,000, but they're asking for 3 million, how can we meet in the middle? How can we have that conversation as to why they're asking so much more money, you know, three times that amount of money? Maybe they're underwriting it the way it's operating right now, but they're not operating it in the way that it should be underwritten or how it could operate in the future. And then also they're probably charging for extra land acreage. There, there could be many reasons why people are overcharging and their asking price. Or they could the just throw up... <laughs> No, and that, and that's great. Or, and the one thing that I've learned is you take emotion out of all these negotiations. And if you go into that situation, like you had just mentioned, Andrea, and you show them your underwriting and, and it's fair and, and well done. And you say, based off of this underwriting, this is what I'm valuing at. That that gives you so much, even if you don't get the deal, which more than likely, if you're that far apart, it ain't happening, sweetheart. <laughs> but at least, at least they'll be able to respect you and be like, wow, this, this guy or girl came in prepared. They've done their research and here's an ob the objective reason why they're offering us a million dollars below our asking price. And that should kind of open their eyes too, potentially to think, Ooh, maybe we're way off base here. Yeah. And I've seen it multiple times where somebody just puts a big fat number out there and says, OK, if somebody gives us three million dollars for this property that has an NOI of one hundred thousand dollars and we'll take it all day. There's a sucker born every minute. I'm, I'm sure it happens. But if you go in prepared like that with your with your homework and, and numbers, it's it's not emotion. It's not you trying to bully them then the, the sellers will respect that, but also the brokers will. And the brokers, a lot of times, this is where we've earned a lot of street cred here is 
we always come prepared. We, we underwrite everything conservatively, but fairly. And we just base it off of off the numbers. And the brokers love that. And they can appreciate it. And they respect the hell out of that, too. So uh, even if it's a rough uh, back of the napkin type of sketch that, that you put together when you're having a drink with the broker, um, I've done that, too, because I know what our expense ratios are, you know, for now four years. And so I can even just take the GSR, the, the gross, you know, the, the gross rents, basically, the, the gross revenue and take 50% off of that and, and know that we're where we're going to be calculate in my head what the mortgage would be and, and, and figure it out from there. But yeah, that was great. Great. It's very important to do like that quick, maybe it's a two minute, three minute analysis, but sometimes brokers, you know, sellers, they overcharge in the asking price. They say, Oh, I want 3 million for this when it's really worth 900,000. Uh, they might do that because they, comped properties nearby as well. So sometimes they look at a property that's similar to yours, comparable, and then they're like, oh, this one just sold three months ago for three million five, or this one just sold for four million. So sometimes that's what they do. They don't even look. It's it's very important for you to go back and give that napkin underwrite or a quick analysis back to the broker you can ask some questions start a dialogue maybe they're willing to have you on the phone with the seller and negotiate creative terms with them uh that right. is also right. very powerful but yeah just to recap the quick napkin underwrite two minute analysis is essentially you understanding what is my gross potential annual income if all the units are 100 percent leased up you're going to subtract your economic and physical vacancy from that and you're get you're arriving at your net annual income and then you need to subtract from that the expense ratio. So if my expense ratio for class B property is 50%, I need to make sure that I subtract it from that. So you want to make sure you have your NOI, you divide that by the market cap rate, and that'll give you your overall valuation. That's very quick, down and dirty. <laughs> but if you're yeah. able to get the financials from the broker that are actual financials that were within the last, at least the last year, and recently. So if I'm right now, we're in February, I should have financials that were from December. At the latest, I should not be receiving financials from like six months ago. They're not worth anything to me because the market has changed a lot in six months. Because whenever you're going to present these financials to a lender, lenders usually want to see the T1, the trailing one month or trailing three month um, operating statement. They want to see how these properties operate in the last couple months and they need them. So if you're working with somebody that's not producing those financials to you, that's another conversation to have. Yeah. And, and uh, just to, you mentioned the T1, the T3, sometimes when a, uh, when a property is over uh, overpriced, overvaluated uh, by the seller, sometimes they're basing it off of that T1. Um, that's not how we, we look at T12 and base. We have to base our decision on on the T12, sometimes, the, uh, you know, T6, um, because if a property has been losing 100 grand a month and then they finally have made changes, whatever those may be, and they have one month of profit and they're going to value it at a $10 million, it, it, it's, it doesn't make sense. But that's sometimes where you see that inflated number is yeah maybe they have made all these changes and that's great 
but who's going to take a risk on spending sometimes millions of dollars based off of one good one good month and that's that's where we always say okay we need to see three six twelve months but sometimes that's why that that big inflated number is out there too that's yeah it's totally true you definitely need to see not just the financials but the rent roll as well um, yes. Anytime I'm going to get do an analysis underwrite on a multifamily deal, whether it's market rate, section eight, I usually start by doing a quick breakdown. I need to see, okay, if this property is located in this city, zip code and county. All right. Now I'm aware of that. Step two, I usually look to in my quick breakdown. That's why I need the offering memorandum or something to tell me the unit breakdown, because I have to break down the averages of these units. I need to see what are we charging for the one bedrooms that are market rate, two bedrooms market rate, studios that are affordable housing, half units, housing assistance payment assisted units. So um, I need to see what is the average square footage of those units, the number of units within that bedroom type, and then what's the actual rent I'm receiving on average for that bedroom type. Yeah. And then I factor in other things like, okay, what is the utility allowance? And then I get my average rent per unit type. So whenever I do this breakdown, I need to make sure that I have a couple of metrics in there so I can understand what am I charging on average for each bedroom type? And then what can I charge for that bedroom type? And then what can I charge depends on the type of um, class I'm investing in. So. If it's a market rate property, I could just look at the comps nearby for that unit bedroom type. But if it's a section eight unit, I have to understand what is the 140% median zip code rent for that bedroom type. Yeah. <laughs> so HUD yeah. has the resources available. Uh, it'll tell you what's the 140% median rent for this zip yeah. code. I also wanna understand what's the fair market rent for that zip code. Uh, for fair market rent for that unit type. And then also what's the max tax credit rent I could get for that bedroom type. So those are the three things I look at median zip, 140% rent. I look at the fair market rents per bedroom type and then the max tax credit rent. And that's if I'm dealing with section eight because that is gonna determine later on how much I can charge and increase in rents for all those bedroom types. And I love the details you said there, the max tax credit rent. How do people find out what is a max tax credit rent? That sounds like you need an accounting degree to almost find it out. When <laughs> you look at this first time. Tell us a little bit more. <laughs> Not at all. So I think I referred this back earlier in the podcast when I said, check the projected median household income. That resource I told you earlier, uh, Novoco, N-O-V-O-C-O.com. They have the rent income calculator that will actually tell you what's the maximum tax credit rent. So they will list out what's the average median income, fair market rent, and they'll tell you when it says 60%, that's the tax credit rent because 60% is the maximum <laughs> that you're left mm -hmm. with for the um, tax credit rent. So that's where you can check it. Yeah, and just to tie everything together, also, you, you know, early on, we, we talked about the target market analysis if you're if that property references all one bedrooms but los angeles doesn't need one bedrooms they need three bedrooms that's something you have to take into account also we we have found from our experience that we're dealing with affordable housing section eight <clears throat> one bedrooms are okay as 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 uh, section eight here in columbus would say 
Um, they have a lot of elderly uh, that need first floor one bedrooms. But what they really, really, really want are two, three bedrooms and beyond for, for families. So that's just another little nugget when you're looking at that unit breakdown saying, ooh, okay, this, this property has 100 units. And of those 180 or one bedrooms and or studios, oof, boy, is this, is this a smart investment um, for what this target market needs also? So, you know, throwing that out for the listener uh, to take into account also. Yeah, that's very important to understand is how much you can charge in rent based on the area median income. You can't price people out of an apartment they want. If if the rents are constantly increasing year by year and it's beyond what they can pay, that's something that you need to understand. You can't just charge luxury apartment rent to someone who's section eight. (laughs) Yeah. And I think we just covered steps two and three almost uh, for your underwriting approach there, Andrea. But maybe for the market analysis part, I might ask and prod a little bit here because sometimes when people think about Section 8 properties, they think about a stigma. We always talk about, just like with our last episode, Alvin Hope Johnson, high crime, high drama, lots of drugs. How do you, with your company, like look at these potential problematic areas, so to speak, and consider like, well, is this still a good area to invest for affordable housing? Or are you just avoiding certain areas together so you can invest in a nicer area and then turn into affordable housing? Tell us your thought process behind how do you make that decisions on locations for affordable housing? What's well, interesting. I don't make the decision. I give the data <laughs> for everything I'm looking to um, provide data with, with my team. I, we make the decision together because ultimately we have to understand if our risk risk barometer is okay with being in an area that's a little bit more high crime. Obviously we don't want that, but this is a sad part about section eight. Whenever you see an area that has a lot of section eight buildings nearby, the crime is usually a little bit higher, but why is that? Is it poorly managed? Is Have the employers in the area just gone away? Um, there's many factors as to why there's higher crime rates in Section 8 units uh, areas. But overall, we want to understand whenever we're looking to invest in a market, we do have to talk to people. We have to actually, it even helps when you visit. I usually Google the street and then usually Google the address. And then I just do like a Google Earth street view to see what are the surrounding neighborhoods. So if you use Google Earth, it'll tell you what the actual buildings look like. And it's important to also call like property managers in the area as well. Um, Sometimes you can look at, like I mentioned, neighborhood scout to see what's the crime rate in the area. But to make the determination of whether you want to invest in that area, I would say you need to visit. (laughs) Visit that market. Um, And if you can't visit, at least someone have that's boots on the ground that can do the visit for you that can kind of secret shop the building you're looking to invest in and ask the right questions to the property managers and take photos so they can act like secret shopping, like they're going to be a potential tenant and walk the units and then they'll give you feedback. But it's you should click up with a community. That's the main reason why we're in these kind of communities of investors so that we can all work together and be boots on the ground for one another. And you can get, get paid as that boots on the ground, maybe a finder's fee, maybe, you know, a consultant fee, but 
that's another great way to get started in real estate is to just be the eyes and ears of other investors. If those investors can't fly out to see the units. Are you saying I should charge uh, my brother, Jared, a finder's fee because he hasn't seen three (laughs) or four of that properties. I'm I'm texting him right now. Andrea said that. (laughs) Sound like you're owed a lot of drinks and dinners, Dane. That's what's going on. (laughs) He's owed a lot of drinks and dinners. And then, you know, you don't have to pay them too. these eyes, boots on the ground. You can also pay them in drinks and dinners and (laughs) having them learn from your multifamily journey and just be part of it. You know, some people just want to learn. They don't even, they're too afraid to put their skin in the game and put money up for a deal. So they're like, I just want to learn. Tell me what I need to do. So it's important to uh, find people that will help you out to see if it's a good neighborhood to invest in. Oh, yeah, that's for so sure. cool. For uh, sure. And I love it. I want to keep moving on. So those are great points about the market analysis. Like nothing beats actually going there and, and getting the vibe of the place that you're looking at because you got to understand this is a business and your customers are your residents there. And you think about if they don't want to live in the area, then your vacancy is going to shoot up eventually, right? And that affects your bottom line ultimately. So trying to create a, a community where people want to live in that's a lot of hard work and that's something that you must be up to the task for. So I want to get to the step four. We talked about trends. Trends is just like a fancy word, like a TikTok trend or something like that. But I know you mean something different for underwriting and multifamily. So what do you mean by <laughs> trends by looking at trends when it comes to analyzing these properties? Let's see. Trends. That can mean many things. So uh, since we've skipped to part four, uh, usually by that time, you're at a pro forma. So a pro forma is essentially for the sake of the form. It's where where you do your deep deep underwrite. There's a lot of resources available out there of people who have their pro forma templates. I think there's like the Michael Blanc pro forma, Brock Mogensen, there's uh, the synthesizer, there's like so many pro formas, but just see which pro forma you're comfortable using ultimately will get you to the very end to see what are your investor returns, but you need to make sure that you're using a pro forma when you're um, looking at the trailing 12 side by side. So what I do whenever I have a pro forma in front of me, I usually just start by plugging the basics um, of what's on the offering memorandum and on the financials. This is where it's at right now. I'm not making any assumptions. And then step two, I use that pro forma to see my own projections of where I and my team could be operating the property at. Um, so by that time, I'm implementing a few percentages, rules of thumb of what I would consider normal for the area or just in general. And um, I'm factoring in increases in legal expenses, tax millage rates, how the property is gonna be reassessed and then trigger a reassessment tax. Um, so I factor those in and then whenever, I'm looking at the trends of a finance, the financials. I have to see how all the items on the trailing 12 have either increased or decreased over certain months. So if I go line by line on a trailing 12, we always start with the top part, which is the income. We want to see, okay, income for like the average annual, the average income for this month, let's say it's 50,000, but then the other months I'm seeing 30,000, 20,000, and then 50,000 again. So it's good to understand what has happened in those months. Maybe there was a renovation that occurred. 
as to why the income dropped. So some people may have relocated or maybe tenants left. So it's good to ask those questions. Um, I would have to, like, I think I'm, I pulled up financials in the beginning just to give you an assessment, but the expenses is where you want to do your trends analysis, especially when it comes to uh, legal taxes. Uh, there's just a lot of trends to look at. Maybe you can uh, direct me into how you want me to answer this question. <laughs> yeah. I, to look at. <laughs> Dan, what have you seen that was out of the order when you looked at trends, either for expenses, yeah. right? There's categories yeah. that you usually kind of go down. One, one thing that triggered me, Andrea, is when you see us, especially if it's within the three to six months before they go to market, if you see all of a sudden their GSR, their rents spike and their vacancy plummet, and I, for those that aren't uh, watching, I'm doing the red blinking light, the alarm light. Uh, this this has come back to bite us. A lot of times, uh, especially in your C-class uh, properties, the owners will fill units with warm bodies. Anybody, anybody and everybody. So if you see that spike in rents, and, and always, always, always... Um, do a deep dive on your leases and, and look and see, are these people qualified? Uh, this is some scar tissue we had. We, you know, we bought our first big, um, it was a five, five and a half million dollar purchase, 76 units that had been, again, C-class, but had been mostly renovated, looked good, uh, looked good on paper. Uh, we got three months months into ownership, and all of a sudden, our vacancy we were was plummeting. Um, delinquencies were skyrocketing, and um, when we did a deep dive, we realized that we didn't vet all of those leases, and so there were people that should never have been put in there um, that were able to pay their first couple of months, and then after that, no. Um, and so that's, that's a, a trend, uh, and just kind of, you know, something that we learned the hard way that, that you should, should look for on the, on the income side, uh, for sure. Uh, on the expense side, you know, taxes kill more deals than, mm -hmm. than anything. So, um, it, it, especially if it's a mom and pop shop, uh, property where they've maybe owned it for 20 years and their taxes are $1,100 a year or something insane. And you're going to buy it for $5 million and now the taxes are 80,000. Well, that's going to kill the deal. So, um, that, that's, that's a biggie. Um, and then really looking at the expense ratio, like Andrea mentioned and seeing where theirs is, if theirs is freakishly below where yours what the norm is you need to really figure out where they're hiding money you know um sometimes it's uh their property manager who they don't pay because it's their daughter and they they pay them in other ways you know or uh or things like that um conversely where you can if if their expense ratios are high um and you look into Things are they billing back for utilities, water, electric? Um, are they are they not billing for pet fees um, and, and, and things like that? And then obviously, 
Andrea, you know, touched on it. You need to know what the average mean rent is and compare every deal that we look at says excellent opportunity to increase rents $200 a month. And they're, they're usually right ish, but do you know how damn hard that is to do? It doesn't happen. If you take over the property January one, guess what? You're not raising rents $200 across the board January 1. It takes two years. And by the way, usually a crap load of vacancy, especially in the affordable housing space where $200 a month to them may be like you know, $2,000 a month to, to us or well, with all Kent's money, $20,000 a month. How's that? Um, <laughs> That's so, so true. <laughs> like, so you whatever have, people say, we have such an up, you know, an increased opportunity in rents, you know, it's so important to not only look at the trends in the financials, but also look at them on the rent roll because the rent roll will tell you uh, these are the lease updates. Like this is when the unit yeah. initial its lease when it had the lease expire on it and then that's possibly <laughs> when you can increase the rent but it also depends on where you're investing are you in a landlord friendly state um do you are you subject to rent control there's so many questions right. to ask just on how soon you can charge that rent so on um, on the income side that is a great place to start just for the income trends to see okay how soon i can charge this rent does it, does it kind of tie into my financials of what I'm charging on the rent roll? And I also, just to go back to your point about the expenses, I look at repair materials. What are the expenses? Maybe there's an increase. So the overall trends, you want to see if there's any major increases or decreases in the average um, expenses you're seeing line by line. On a, if I know this zoom is called deep dive analysis into the underwriting but we would really have to look at a trailing 12 so i can show you what are the trends because there's so many fees that you will see on an actual trailing 12 that can start off by you know they could range from anything it could be turnover expenses you yeah. see any high increases maybe sometimes you will see that the property manager um tied in their capex their actual renovation expenses they put them into their turnover expenses yeah. yep. to drive down the noi but that does not favor them when it comes time to a sale um, but they probably just didn't do a good cost segregation or did not factor those types of expenses into an actual renovation expense so that they ended up um, increasing the expenses on the turnover side and also repairs and maintenance it might be baked in there <laughs> so also contractor services there's um trends in the utilities maybe they increased a certain month or decreased there's water sewer trash gas electric you have to see if there's any rubs any um chargebacks to the tenants yeah. also there's payroll expenses sometimes <laughs> you might see some corruption when it comes to payroll are people bonusing a little too much or maybe um the you know the taxes or the salaries have gone up tremendously and you did not account for that so i think repairs and maintenance is something we did touch on um people might bake in the capex renovation into that but you just want to see how the trends lie month to month on those repairs and maintenance and then the administrative expenses as well. This could include things like 
you know, the bank fees or computer fees. <laughs> Sometimes a team buys themselves a new iPad, that. So it's just asking those questions. Okay, are the is a brand new couch or brand new this, you know, gonna benefit you guys in the in the long run? And if it will, that's fine. Um, let's see, what are other expenses? There's advertising and promotion expenses, management fees. Uh, usually the management fee is pretty stable, depends mm -hmm. on the market you're in, but I've seen affordable housing market mar uh, management fees be from three to 5%. It just depends on if it's in-house or outsourced. Real estate taxes, you're going to see those trends either. Definitely it's going to go up. Whenever it's going to change title to another owner, uh, you're mm -hmm. going to see uh probably see a tax reassessment. So it's good to call the county. I usually call and find out if there's going to be a tax reassessment upon sale and what the millage rate would be. So you multiply that millage rate by the sale price. And then the property insurance will go up a little bit. Uh, depends on who your carrier is. There's professional fees. Uh, and then overall, just understanding what are just what are the trends in all these expenses? Are they increasing or decreasing month by month and why? That's the main question. Yeah. And, and I love that you touch upon all those different fields because now the audience actually understands like, wow, there is a lot of stuff in, in a T12 to actually <laughs> kind of go through, right? Because you, you mentioned repairs and maintenance and maybe this covers the next step already because that will cover like, hey, if they haven't been keeping up with repairs and maintenance, maybe there's going to be a big CapEx item that's waiting for you when you take over the property. Because that's just naturally, something has to give, right? If you're not keeping up with, with preventative maintenance, something is going to eventually bite you in the butt. But I want to make sure we're almost getting to the end of the call. I want to make sure we spend a little bit of time on financing terms, because that could be really, really complex. Tell me about the relationship between the underwriter and you, you know your strategy for getting lending. Are you playing around with different... Uh, loan products and then figure out like, okay, now this is when we go to the lender and what we can do. Or do you just have people that typically have lending relations already? Like, Hey, this is what we got. Take it or leave it. And then you just plug that into underwriting. How does that kind of bounce back and forth? Well, this is the important part about underwriting is making sure you have a team that's helping you, that's supporting you. Because if you come to the part where it's financing terms, this is always the sticking point where I have to talk to my team and be like, all right, what financing is available to us? We usually have a folder in which uh, we understand uh, certain kinds of financing like um, Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac. Those are some of the financing opportunities that you'll have in Section 8. And then you can also see FHA financing in Section 8. But if it's uh, market rate loans, you could see all kinds of stuff. Conventional, there's bridge loans, there's people that will give you like an equity investor. Um, so for this particular property, we want to see what options are available to us in terms of financing, because the typical loans that are out there are debt service loans. How much debt service can I cover? Like, will my, will my ultimate uh, income cover the debt service on this property? Like my overall net operating income, is that going to cover the debt, the mortgage payments the note payments I'm going to make on this particular property. So the actual lender will do their own underwriting when it comes time to after we've done the initial underwriting, we've submitted the LOI, 
we're under contract negotiating the purchase and sale agreement. We, at that point, we are discussing this property with lenders. We, they are doing their own underwriting on this property and seeing what's, what they can offer us in terms of interest rate. Um, if there's going to be any kind of a rehab, so we have to determine what's going to be the equity raised for the rehab. Uh, if we're going to do a construction reserve account tied to this property. Uh, so in terms of financing, it is a team effort. <laughs> we need to see what the what comes first, the chicken or the egg. This is the best part of the underwriting is seeing, okay, do we need to find the money first or find a deal first? And it is finding the money first so that we know what options are available to us either through the direct lenders or through the mortgage brokers. So um, I've worked with mortgage brokers before, um, direct lenders, private money lenders. There's other institutional lenders like Citibank, CBRE, Grandbridge. There's, um, you know, equity investors like R4. There's, uh, let's see, Marcus Millichap. I mean, there's tons of people who want to give money that are institutional lenders because as long as it's a good deal and it'll make sense for them, they will offer you flexible loan to value or loan to cost terms. And um, it just really, it's an effort that requires people to start having those conversations. And then you factor that into your underwriting when you're determining what you're going to give as a down payment for the, for this property to the seller and then um, what, what you're going to put as a down payment. And then after that, if you're doing any kind of seller financing or creative strategies, that's something that you need to work out between you and the seller. Love it. And I love that. And I, and I'm trying to keep up with you, Andrea, because you had the analogy with the pool earlier, right? This is almost like you guys have to develop the menu of all of the financing options so that when it comes to you, you can actually just pick it off the menu and be like, all right, this part of the menu kind of fits my appetite for this deal. It's kind of like that where you guys have to do all the work in advance. I know, Dane, do you, do you and Jared do anything different for your deals? Do you guys already have the financing in place? Uh, we usually find the deal first and then immediately start the, the <laughs> financing. I mean, we always, we always have our finger on the pulse of what rates mm -hmm. are and what some of the lenders that we work with can offer. But it's literally, if we find something that we're, that we underwrite and we're like, hey, this has legs, boom, immediately we send out the email to find out what terms there are. The other thing, <clears throat> just to kind of piggyback off of the foundation that Andrea set there, the biggest thing to, it, it can be overwhelming because there's so many different types of lenders and, and types of notes and, uh, where are we at in the market cycle? Nobody knows exactly, but you don't want to set yourself up to have to refinance when rates are, what are they now? Seven, 8%. If you're at two and a quarter and on a three-year, you know, variable note and three years hits and all of a sudden, instead of being two and a quarter, now it's eight and a quarter guess what? There's blood in the water and you're going to, you're, you're hurting. So nobody knows exactly, but you have to do your best guesstimate. It used to be almost uh, every 10 years, there would be a peak in a valley and it was fairly predictable. I don't know what in the hell is going on now. I don't think anybody does, but I think we're slowly starting to go into a valley. So I, I would, I would take that into account, trying to figure out where we are 
in the in the market cycle and i'm very risk adverse you know so i i would give on rate to have long-term stability i think we talked about the first deal we did was 20 units and that was a 20-year fixed which is unheard of yeah it was i don't know a half a half point higher than everybody else but we knew what our rate you know we knew what our payment was going to be for 20 years it wasn't going to spike to eight percent uh in in a year or two and and leave us uh in in a bad way so um the the way we normally normally do things is we start off with uh local banks and and they get to know us it's that feel good story we can usually negotiate uh better with them on on everything um including interest only and that's another biggie is if you're taking on a c c minus property and are going to need to put significant capex into the property a lot of times these local banks will give you really my strong recommendation to every listener go for two years minimum of interest only so you can breathe and have them bake in the capex money so if you know you're going to need three hundred thousand dollars of capex to replace roofs um, and re reline sewers talk to them about that and say hey i need two years of io so i can do right by you and and really improve the quality of life of the tennis, but also the, the appraisal value of this property. So book me up with two years of, of IO, bake in the 300 grand. Um, and then you may have to give a little bit here or there. Uh, but, but that's the way we normally start. Um, Got it. now you're, you are personally at risk on that note. That's, that's, that's the downside. Mm-hmm. Um, versus if you went straight Freddie, uh, Freddie or, uh, or, or Fanny where, you can not have that on your personal note. Now, there are disadvantages there also in terms of how much money you need to bring to the table. Um, And then your exit strategy is one other topic that I would mention. Market cycle, everything else that I've mentioned there, but then also your exit strategy. Do you think you're only going to hold it for three years? If that's the case, then probably using a local you know, uh, bank is probably your best option because some of the early uh, termination or early exit fees on, um, uh, you know, Freddie uh, in in particular are are really high and can uh, can rob you of a lot of your profits and and hard work. That's true. I had lunch with a lender uh, two days ago and I asked him, what are the application fees? Are there any prepayment fees? It's good to understand what fees you're getting into because not only are they doing you a favor by giving you money, um, but they're also going to charge you um, just by giving you that money. It's not just charging you by being able to have that capacity to take back the property in case you default, but um, they they need to make sure that they're going to make as much on the back end as much as the front end when they're going to lend these types of units to you. And then lenders typically will ask you, especially with section eight properties, they're going to ask you, okay, what is the money it is making at the moment? So they want to verify this by seeing what is on the rent schedule. Uh, The rent schedule will tell you in section eight properties, 
per bedroom type, what is being charged at this property for this unit type. And then um, that rent schedule, like I said, how we make money in affordable housing is very different from market rate units because with affordable housing, um, you're if you're buying a Section 8 property, it's going to have a 20-year HAP contract on it. It's going to usually have a housing assistance payment contract on it. That's the standard. And every five years, we have to engage a rent comparability study, an RCS, which will be able to increase the rents for that particular um, bed, those particular units in Section 8. And the rent comparability study, even though it's engaged with the third party, you can actually work with that third party to pre-select, um, not pre-select, well, post-select comps that you want to have them factor into the analysis. Because ultimately, the third party will determine your rents that you can submit to HUD to get that money from the government. So um, it, it's not that we make less money in affordable housing, it's how we make that money. Because, you know, the tenants at these properties will pay maximum 30% of their income towards towards the rent, but that voucher that they have will cover the rest of it. And that rent comparability study I was mentioning, that is the market rate uh, rent that we can charge the tenants, but that difference gets covered by HUD. So um, lenders want to understand what is the rent that I'm going to depend on for these Section 8 units and for the market rate units, because that'll factor into their underwriting in terms of their gross potential income. And that's how they're going to determine what money to give you too. <laughs> Andrea, you could not have ended this show any better because this is a perfect tee up to our next show where we dive deeper into comps, meaning how are we actually going to increase rents for apartments? Like looking at the difference between market rate and section eight, but we're going to go through what those rent comparability studies are. So we can actually understand how do we legally do it and how do you actually work with third party? And we can go really deep into detail. So uh, I know we got to go and wrap this up show. So if you guys, uh, for all the listeners out there, if there were a specific topic in there that we covered to that you would like us to go even deeper, please comment in the comment section. Let us know and we'll try to bring Andrea and Dane and Jared and all of the guests back on so we can cover these questions for you guys, right? This is the whole point of this conversation. It's for all of you guys. Happy so, dance. Have a whole party yes. here. <laughs> if you want to follow us and get notified of the next show, uh, please follow Andrea Garcia at Andrea Garcia REI. Uh, on Instagram, you can follow us on youtube.com slash at Kent underscore he. And don't forget to reach out to Dane at aspenrealtyco.com. Thank you, guys. It was an awesome show. I appreciate it. Love awesome it. Job, Thank you. <laughs>